Analia Bortz from Jerusalem is one of those people who seems to have lived multiple lives. I grew up in Argentina. Uh, we made Aliyah a year ago. She's a medical doctor. And I'm a bioethicist. And she's also, and this was the reason for our chat, a rabbi. In fact, she told me she was... The first female rabbi in South America, uh, ordained in 1994. <laughs> That's quite a list of things to be. Uh, yes, but actually today my passion is just to take care of the family, to indulge my granddaughter, uh, to do a lot of art and to study archaeology. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, enjoying it. All right, so we are just about uh, to celebrate Sukkot. And can you explain a little bit what Sukkot is all about? So Sukkot is a wonderful holiday. It's uh, the, the relationship with the land, uh, the sense of um, belonging without being anchored in a place. So for seven days, we go out of our permanent homes and we live outside our permanent homes. Uh, basically, it's a little bit of how the Jewish people uh, are uh, in our history. We just pick up our oalim, our tents, and we just move to another place. And what exactly is a sukkah? So sukkah is a non-permanent structure. Um, according to the Talmud, it has to have at least two and a half non-permanent walls um, with a schach, which is the roof that you can see the stars from there. That schach, the roof, is often made out of kapot marim, the branches of palm or date trees. They are, therefore, a key component of any respectable sukkah. Which is why many municipalities, including Tel Aviv's, give out schach for free. Hi, what are you doing exactly? Uh, going to make with my children sukkah. And I'm bringing uh, the roof of this sukkah. The schach. The schach. And uh, this is all for free here? The municipality yes, gives it for, for free. free? Yes, yes, it's a free. Where, where do you live? I'm living in, uh, in Natania, but I'm working in Tel Aviv. I'm a gardener. Also in Natania, they're giving uh, free. So how many branches are you taking? I took a good 10. That's enough for you? Yes, it's a little one, little sukkah. Okay, Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach, Thank you to Iriat Tel Aviv. But in Jerusalem and a bunch of other places around the country, the schach market around this time of year is booming. Most stands ran out within a few hours. And as the holiday neared, the prices started to climb from six shekels to seven shekels to a whopping ten shekels per branch. With prices like that, I decided to go straight to the source, to the Jordan Valley not far from the northern tip of the Dead Sea, where I met up with 52-year-old Dror Sinai. Hi, Dror. Nice to meet you. Uh, nice to meet you, too. Where are we? We are here in Tzomet Almog, in my uh, dates uh, field, uh, near Jericho. I live in the settlement over here, very Jericho. This is my dates. So you grew these trees from zero? Yeah. I was the one that... There was no. nothing here? Nothing. How did you get into this business? It's something that burned in my veins that I feel that I want to be in agriculture. I know only to grow dates. This is the only thing that I know how to deal with. So now is date season? Yeah, this is the date season. Now we are picking the fruits. I can tell you it's a celebrate for me. You know, it's something that causes you a lot of happiness. Wait, so these guys over here are, are picking the fruit? Yeah. And these ones over here? They're cutting the leaves. And this is for Sukkot? Yeah, this is for Sukkot. There's a guy that came to take these leaves from me. And you can find it after we eat in Measherim and Yeshivas in uh, Jerusalem. And do you make more money on the fruit or more money on the, um, on the leaves? I, I'm not making money from the leaves. Turns out this is a perfectly timed and mutually beneficial situation. I need to cut it anyway. We Why? Need to, because the tree is supposed to grow up and the leaves that have become to be brown has become to be useless. The tree don't need them. So it's a win-win situation between 
uh, the holiday and the farmers and everything. And it's, uh, it's for me, I'm also happy to, to, to do it for people in Israel that they can enjoy also from the schach that came from the dates uh, that I'm growing. And you also take some home for your own sukkah. I'm taking a lot, something like 200 because I have a big sukkah in my house. 200 branches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's your sukkah like? It's a big one. Yeah, all the family come in Sukkot to, to, to our sukkah from all over the country. So it's a big one. It's something like 20 meters sukkah that we build uh, every year. Tov, toda, toda, dro, chak sameach. So if Dror is looking forward to hosting his large family, for Analia, it's all about... The guests. Every single night there's another guest. By guests, she's referring to the Kabbalistic tradition of welcoming Ushpizin, or symbolic guests, into the sukkah. Who are you going to bring tonight? Are you going to bring Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, or Leah? Or are you going to bring Golda Meir or, uh, you know, or Shulamit Aloni? Um, so th- that sense of, you know, there's always room for someone else to come to the sukkah. Uh, sometimes it's more intellectual oriented, sometimes it's just fun, and there's a lot of singing. Uh, for sure, Shlomit Munasuka, Tateratiauka. And um, is the sukkah supposed to be our, our new temporary home? So it, it's a home that is a temporal home. I think that basically that's a, a nice analogy to life, right? I mean, it's like life is temporal home, right? That's who we are. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by Tablet Magazine and the Jerusalem Foundation. Our episode today, No Place Like Home. We're going to hear two very different stories. One about a popular Israeli children's book, and the other about a South Sudanese asylum seeker. But both of them are, deep down, about the same thing. Making a home. Alright, Act 1, Room for Rent. Leah Goldberg is one of the most celebrated women in Israeli history. Heck, she's even on the new 100 shekel bill. She was born 110 years ago, in the Prussian city of Königsberg which nowadays is Kaliningrad, in Russia. And she died of cancer in Jerusalem, at the age of 58. She was an author, a poet, a playwright, a critic, an editor, a columnist, a translator, a teacher, and a beloved professor of comparative literature. Even though she's been dead for more than half a century, she somehow manages to live on discovered and rediscovered by each new generation of Israelis. And why, you might wonder, does that happen? Well, it's due in large part to what's probably her most enduring legacy, the children's book Dira Laskir, or Room for Rent. Dira Laskir is a classic, one of the most popular Israeli children's books of all time. Goldberg first published it in 1948, and it's since gone through three editions and countless reprintings. It's been translated into many languages, including, only surprisingly recently, into English. Now, as you might know, I became a father ten months ago. And I've been spending a lot of time reading books to my little daughter Halel. I try out different voices, try out different styles, try to make her laugh. And whenever I get stuck, Whenever I stumble, I channel my inner Yoni Yahav. Yoni is a dear, dear childhood friend of mine. He lives in Jerusalem, teaches Hebrew to Palestinian students in East Jerusalem, and is finishing up a PhD at the Hebrew University in Arabic literature. But the reason I channel my inner Yoni is because when we were kids, Yoni had a side gig, an amazing side gig actually, as a cartoon dubber on TV. He was, and remains to this day, the best maker of voices I know. So we asked Yoni if we could join him as he read this classic bedtime story, Room for Rent, to his two daughters, six-year-old Mayan and four-year-old Yasmin. Okay, so come sit next to me, Mayanush. I'm coming. Come, love. Come, Chuk. 
All right. Room for Rent by Leah Goldberg. In a sunlit valley between meadow and sky stands a fine old house that's five stories high. On the first floor is a Cornish hen, heavy and stout. All day long she lazes about. Our friend Miss Hen is so fat and coddled she can barely manage a walk or a waddle. On the second floor lives a cuckoo bird. Her chicks are all scattered, you may have heard. From dawn to dusk, she makes her rounds to visit her children in other towns. On the third floor is a cat who's finically clean. She combs her whiskers so pristine, with fur that's darkest midnight black, and a bow round her neck. She's vain about that. What's vain? Someone who's a bit shallow, just thinking about the outside, the way he looks. So she's a little bit vain. On the fourth floor lives a tranquil squirrel. With her friends, she's never picked a quarrel. She cracks pecans to her heart's content and says, This piece is heaven sent. <coughs> Up on floor five lived Sir Reginald Mouse. Until one week ago when he left the house. And to this day, we have our doubts that anyone knows his whereabouts. The committee got together and drew up a sign. In large block letters, in one straight line, they hung the sign on a nail on the door. It read, Room for, for rent, not one word more. It's really amazing how Leah Goldberg was able to express herself for children. I think she had a very strong little child inside her. My name is Amia Liblik. I am a professor emerita from Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And as a first-year student at the Hebrew University, I had the honor of participating in a big class of Leah Goldberg, where she was teaching foreign literature. She was fascinating, and she could talk without any notes and quote different world literature by heart. She had a very heavy voice out of, I think, many, many years of smoking, and she smoked in the classroom all the time. One cigarette finished another one, and the room was always full of smoke, it was amazing. Because on the one hand, she was such a serious author and scholar, and you may think that a woman like that would be very far away in her ability to express herself to children. And she had no children of her own. But one of her most famous books is A Room for Rent, I have three children and four grandchildren. I read the books to my children who are already in the midlife, and I read it to my grandchildren, and they know it by heart. By highway and byway, past hills and down dales, new tenants came knocking, telling their tales. First was Miss Ant. She marched up to floor five. When she walks. Opened the door and peeked inside. The neighbors all gathered around to spy as Miss Ant checked the place with a critical eye. They asked her politely if the rooms were all right. Perhaps she would like to stay for the night. Are the rooms nice? Yes, they'll suffice. Will the kitchen do? It's just right, too. Do you like the hall? It's fine, that's all. So come live with us, Miss Ant. I can't. Why not? The ant replied in a nasty gripe. Sorry, but the neighbors are not my type. A hardworking ant can hardly reside with a lazy hen whom she cannot abide. The Miss Hen in this house is so fat and coddled, she can hardly manage a walk or a waddle. The hen was hurt and turned her back. <coughs> Miss Ant went away, no need to unpack. As soon as she'd gone, inbounded Miss Rabbit. Jumpy, jumpy! She bounced up the stairs, as was her habit. She read the sign and took a long look. Her soft furry ears quivered and shook. 
The neighbors all gathered around to spy as the rabbit checked the place with a critical eye. They asked her politely if the rooms were all right. Perhaps she would like to stay for the night. Are the rooms nice? Yes, they'll suffice. Will the kitchen do? It's just right, too. Do you like the hall? It's fine, that's all. So, Mrs. Rabbit, please stay. No way. I'm sorry, she gasped, but to make it short, the neighbors are simply not the right sort. How could a mother with twenty young ones live with the cuckoo who abandoned her sons? The cuckoo's chicks sleep in other mom's nests. She abandoned each one along with the rest. What kind of example is she for my brood? Don't beg me to stay. I'm not in the mood. The cuckoo bird stalked out in a huff. Mrs. Rabbit raced off. She'd had more than enough. It was as if someone gave me a piece of gold and I looked at it and I said, nah, I'm not going to take it. My name is Ilan Greenfield and I'm the owner of Geffen Publishing House. Thirty-some years ago, we received the proposal to publish Room for Rent in English. So I looked at the book, I looked at the proposal, they wanted a lot of money to publish it. And I said, you know what? Forget it. I almost didn't know what Room for Rent was. There's almost no Israeli child who grew up in Israel who hasn't grown up on this book. Although I grew up in Israel and I was born here, I was born to an American father and a Czech mother. My mother was a Holocaust survivor. She barely went through, I think, uh, fifth or sixth grade. They spoke English together, so our literature was not really Hebrew books. And the period I grew up in, my parents were struggling to make a living. I don't think they had the time to read books to us. I can't say I grew up on it. Maybe 25 or 30 years went by. And in one of those rare moments when I clean up all the paperwork in my desk, I saw this contract and I said, wow, I can't believe they offered me to publish Room for Rent. And what I really can't believe is that I refused. How stupid could I have been? It was just unbelievable to me. And I thought to myself, well, should I throw it out or should I call them up? And I said, there's no chance no one published it. I mean, 30 years is a long time. It's a book that sold hundreds of thousands of copies in Israel. I said, you know what? Let me try. I picked up the phone, called them up. And he said, actually, we publish in many languages. We've never published it in English. And I said, I want to publish it. With Mrs. Rabbit gone, in came Snortimus Pig, in a pork pie hat and a curly wig. He read the sign, Room for Rent, tumbled inside, and up he went. His tiny eyes peered at the ceiling and floor, the windows and walls, while he stood at the door. The neighbors all gathered around to spy as the pig scanned the place with a critical eye. They asked him politely if the rooms were all right. Perhaps he would like to stay for the night. Are the rooms nice? Uh, yes, they'll suffice. And the kitchen? What do you say? Far too clean, but uh, okay. Do you like our hall? It's fine, that's all. Then Snortimus, will you remain? Heavens, no! I must complain. The neighbors are not to my taste, I'm afraid. There's been a huge error, a mistake has been made. Me in the same house as a cat with black fur? A white thoroughbred pig cannot live next to her? The neighbors did not remain silent for long. Get out of here, pig, they cried. Scoot, run along. You're the mistake, you're the one who's all wrong. Goodbye, grunted Snortimus, tossing his tail. Then in waltzed a honey-voiced nightingale. The nightingale sang a melodious song. As she flew up the staircase, it didn't take long. She read the sign and opened the door, examined the walls, the ceilings, the floor. The neighbors all gathered around to spy as the nightingale gazed with a critical eye. They asked her politely if the rooms were all right. Perhaps she would like to stay for the night. Are the rooms nice? Yes, they'll suffice. And the kitchen will do? It's just right, too. Then stay with us, please. No, I won't stay or ask for the keys. The neighbors are dreadful as everyone sees. How can I enjoy my peace and quiet when the squirrel downstairs is creating a riot? She cracks those nuts the whole day through. The noise is worse than in a zoo. My delicate ears need a beautiful tune, not a squirrel some racket that makes me swoon. 
The squirrel flinched and took offense. The nightingale flew off over the fence. The squirrel was a little bit offended. What's offended? He felt sorry about himself. He was a little bit sad because she was saying bad things about the noise he makes. I love languages. Languages are part of my soul. Okay, my name's Jessica Setborn, and I am a translator from Hebrew into English. You know, this book is really, it's canonic in Israeli culture, not just for children today, but, you know, anyone who was raised in Israel and even people that were raised abroad. I mean, as a Jew growing up in San Antonio, Texas, my parents had this book because they wanted me to learn Hebrew as a kid. And my Israeli aunt sent us a copy of this book. So I was familiar with the book even as a kid. And we're talking, you know, like 50 years ago. Elon offered me the opportunity to translate uh, this book and it was very exciting. I jumped at the chance. First, I just read the book and tried to absorb the feeling of the language. Then I tried to think, how can I render this in English? At a certain point, I, I stopped worrying about being true to the original and really think about how it sounds. So purists might take issue, but I think it's successful. I hope that Leah Goldberg wouldn't quarrel with me. With the nightingale gone, in floated the dove. She flittered and fluttered to the top floor above. She read the sign and opened the door, examined the walls, the ceiling, the floor. The neighbors all gathered around to spy as the dove glanced about with a critical eye. They asked her politely if the rooms were all right. Perhaps she would like to stay for the night. Are the rooms nice? They're small at this price. Will the kitchen do? It's narrow, that's true. The hallway, is it roomy? It's dark and gloomy. So you won't stay with us? Yes, I will, cooed the dove. And in fact, I would love to live here among you. Miss Hen, I can see, is a feathery friend. This sweet cuckoo bird is true to her word. The cat's so pristine, not a speck can be seen. The squirrel shares her treasured nuts. A generous neighbor, no ifs and no buts. I'm sure we'll be able to get along. Our friendly ties will remain steady and strong. The dove decided to rent the room. Now she sits at her window and grooms her plume. In a sunlit valley between meadow and sky stands a fine old house that's five stories high. With laughter that rings from every floor, true friends and good neighbors. Who could ask for more? For more and more and more. Right. So what do you think of uh, the story, Manny? Nice. Yeah? Was the dove uh, the good neighbor that they were looking for? Yes, Why? it was. <laughs> Why was she the good neighbor? Because because she loved the shenim. The neighbors, yeah, she liked the neighbors. That piece was produced by Nomi Schneider and Skylar Inman with music by Tal Blecharovich, and additional scoring and sound design by Zev Levi. We'll be right back. And now, back to our episode. Before the break, we heard Leah Goldberg's Room for Rent. The dove, you'll recall, ultimately made the fifth-floor apartment her new home. And our next story is about a woman who's been trying for years to do just that, to find a place of her own to call home. Here's Marie Rude with Act Two, A Land of Promises. When people ask me where my home is, um, I find it quite hard to answer. Um, but I originally come from South Sudan, and that's, that's, that's where I know I come from, um, but I don't really know where my home is. <laughs> that's Christina, Christina Bazia. She's tall, has bleached buzz-cut hair, dark skin, and fierce eyes that somehow don't seem to match the shyness of her smile. She's 19 years old, but listening to her, you'd think she was much older. Or maybe I should say, much more mature. I just feel I've been to so many places, and every time I tried to call a place my home, it was snatched away from me. Christina was born a refugee. In fact, she's what UN agencies call a second-generation refugee. 
And as is the case with many other refugees, it's hard to know where exactly to start her story. I could go all the way back to 1998 when Christina's parents, Jacqueline and Philip, took their three-year-old firstborn daughter, Viola, and fled war-torn Sudan in search of a safer future. This jihad is tantamount to genocide. I could alternatively begin in Beirut, Lebanon, where the Bazias wound up and where, in 2001, Christina herself was born. Or else I could fast forward a few years and start in Madi, a bustling suburb of Cairo, where Christina spent her early childhood. But instead, I'm going to open with a scene which, to Christina too, felt like a true beginning. A modern-day exodus from Egypt. It's June 2007, and we're in the Sinai Peninsula. It's a pitch-black night. Bedouin smugglers have just instructed six-year-old Christina, 12-year-old Viola, their father, their pregnant mother, and a few dozen other Sudanese asylum seekers to climb onto the back of a rickety pickup truck. And they covered us, and they're like, don't make any noise, and uh, if you do, it will be a problem to us and to you, and so just don't risk it. They're speeding down bumpy desert roads that lead to the border with Israel. They're all squeezed tightly together, covered by bedsheets, trying as best as they can to remain silent. Suddenly, the truck comes to a halt. Christina hears men shouting in Arabic. We were like wondering what is happening. They find out that we are there because like if these Egyptian soldiers would uh, catch them on the way with us, we would be dead. The smugglers claim that they're merely transporting goods, but the soldiers don't seem to buy it. One of them pokes the sheet. I felt someone just touching me from outside. But then the soldiers back off. Perhaps they've received some bakshish, some bribe money. Maybe some other agreement was reached. Who knows? In any event, the truck continues on. A few hours later, they stop once again. This time, the smugglers lift the bedsheets and tell the passengers to get out and start walking. I remember crying the whole night. And I was telling my dad, I need to sleep. I have to go to school tomorrow. And I didn't understand, actually. They approach the border by foot. Military spotlights search the terrain, trying to detect any movement. Philip picks Christina up and dashes towards the low barbed wire fence, which at the time marked the border with Israel. It felt like only one very short wire made the whole difference, that if you were on the other side, you were like in danger, you could be shot and you could be killed. But if you like in the other side, you're safe. There was, of course, no parting of the sea. But much like the children of Israel, the Bazias had escaped Egypt and were now entering their new home. Feeling so scared and then feeling so safe in the same minute. That's how I felt. And the first people they encounter? IDF soldiers. On the other side, we were like running from soldiers. When we reached, Israeli land, like soldiers were coming to help us. They gave us food, they gave us blankets, um, they gave us like clothes. Now, Christina's story might sound familiar to you. Back then, thousands of asylum seekers were crossing the Sinai and entering Israel each year. Perhaps you recall the heated national debate sparked by their arrival a debate in which some stressed Israel's moral obligation to care for them, while others famously claimed that they were a cancer in the heart of the nation. Like many other Sudanese refugees who fled to Israel, the Bazias were sent to Arad, a dusty city on the edge of the Judean desert. Three months after their arrival, Jacqueline, Christina's mom, gave birth to a baby boy. She called him Jackson. His birth marked a new and promising start for the family. Soon, Jacqueline and Philip found jobs at a Dead Sea hotel, 
While Viola and Christina enrolled in Israeli schools and underwent a rapid acculturation. Within just a few months, Christina was already fluent in Hebrew and would rush home from school every day to watch Mexican soap operas. Believe it or not, that's way more Israeli than it sounds. Like many of her new friends, she joined the local chapter of the Machanota Olim youth movement. We did a lot of things together. We danced to so many songs and we drew and we colored and I found many friends and uh, we became so close. There is this one specific song that it's just like whenever I hear it anywhere, I just remember the times um, I was like, you know, I was part of the movement. Um, and it's uh, called Od Yavo Shalom Aleinu. That is, peace will come upon us. That alone, like, it brings a lot of memories. Christina was a busy kid. Besides the youth movement, she signed up for English lessons and dance classes, spent long afternoons at the public swimming pool, or dressing up for selfie photo shoots with her best friend Alul, herself a Sudanese refugee. Here she is, speaking to me on WhatsApp from Uganda. Uh, we liked, actually we loved taking pics. <laughs> Every day we would do that almost. Their youth movement leader, their madricha, was Leo Lechner from Kibbutz Naran in the Jordan Valley. She also recalls those carefree days, nearly a decade ago. I know Christina uh, since she was a very young and little girl. <laughs> a lot of energy, very smart, very sharp, knows what you want, know how to uh, ask for it. In other words, very Israeli. At some point, we felt like, you know, we're, we're Israel. Like, all of us speak Hebrew um, at home. And it's just, we, we live the same way people live here. I was thinking of, like, maybe I would go to the army and um, defend this country. I was, this is, this is my actual, this is, this is my place. But just as Christina's life and her adoptive homeland seemed more and more stable, her parents' native country, Sudan, underwent a dramatic transition. In the summer of 2011, its southern region broke off and gained independence. At midnight tonight, Africa's largest nation will effectively split in two. Independence Day for South Sudan's independence. With the excitement comes the challenge of rebuilding the country's institutions, infrastructure and healthcare, devastated by years of conflict with the North. This marked the official end of the civil war between factions of the Muslim North and the Christian South. The end, that is, of the same bloody struggle that had forced Jacqueline and Philip to flee their country to begin with 13 years earlier. And as you might imagine, it was a symbolic and meaningful moment for them. They cried, really. Like, my mom was really happy. My dad was really, really happy. And I remember, like, us having a celebration um, because South Sudan get independence. But 10-year-old Christina couldn't really understand, or at least couldn't really feel, the same kind of patriotic excitement as her parents did. For her, South Sudan wasn't home, but rather just a faraway land, a vague concept. She had never been there, of course, nor did she know much about the circumstances that had forced her parents to leave. It was just, it was something that was never talked about, you know, at home. The impact this political development could have on her life didn't seem tangible, until it did. One day at school, a teacher approached her and asked, When are you going back to South Sudan? And for me, I just looked at her in a very, you know, weird way. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to South Sudan. The Israeli government, on the other hand, thought differently. When South Sudan was formally established, Israel decided that it was no longer necessary to protect the South Sudanese population living here. In January 2012, the government announced that those who left voluntarily 
would receive a one-way plane ticket and 1,300 US dollars. And my parents were among those people who left willingly. But while her parents were ecstatic about returning home after so many years in exile, Christina was heartbroken. Once again, she would have to leave behind everything she knew and start from scratch in a foreign country. I felt like really angry. I was really fed up. I screamed and I I told them that I was I wasn't going to South Sudan. I don't want to go to South Sudan. I'm staying in Israel because Israel is my home. But my dad was like, we don't have a choice. We can't stay here. And if we don't leave, they will deport us by force. We're nothing but just refugees. We don't have a choice. That was most definitely not how Christina saw herself. In her mind, she wasn't a refugee. She was Israeli. She yelled and screamed, but to no avail. Their deportation, set for July 2nd, 2012, was a done deal. But when the day came, it was nothing like the last time she left her home, hiding underneath bedsheets in the back of a truck. This time around, it was somewhat of a public event. I felt like the whole city came to say goodbye. My teachers came. My friends from school came. Lior Lechner, Christina's youth movement leader, also came to say farewell. We were standing like hundreds of people and uh, escorted to the buses and giving them some uh, medicine and some games that you can take with them on the plane. We didn't know what they really will need and what's going on in this new country. Shalom. There were like so many journalists and many people asking us questions. Um, are you happy? Are you proud to go back to South Sudan? I just, how can I say it? I swallowed all my emotions and pretended as if I was really proud to go back. And I'm happy. But deep inside, I didn't know what I was getting into. Alul, Christina's best friend, was deported on the very same day. It was hard leaving our friends, having to leave everything behind and you start a new life. We didn't expect it. I've seen pictures taken that day. People were crying and hugging. And someone had made a homemade sign. Am Israel, it read. Al People of Israel, don't forget us. Before long, the bus with all the deportees made its way from Arad to Ben Gurion Airport. And as she boarded the plane, Christina made a promise to herself. I was like, I'm going to come back to Israel. I'm going to come back. A few hours and a short layover in Ethiopia later, the Bazias landed in South Sudan. They settled down in Gudele II, a rapidly growing neighborhood on the outskirts of the new country's capital, Juba. South Sudan was in its infancy. There was hardly any infrastructure, and people were still clearly scarred from the decades of violence and chaos. But there was a perceptible sense of euphoria in the air, the optimism of a new beginning. Far from being swept away by those sentiments, Christina focused on more mundane challenges. There were like these small things that really made me feel uncomfortable, like the shower, the toilet, where we sleep. And it was just a whole different thing. And I just felt like it was as if falling from heaven. Because at some point, I had everything I wanted in Israel. But then I just had to come to this place that I don't know how to deal with it. It was a delicate situation. Christina didn't feel like she would ever fit in in her new home. But at the same time, she could see how happy her parents were to be back. So she largely kept her discontent to herself. A year and a half after they returned, the country's honeymoon period ended. 
mounting tensions between South Sudan's two largest tribes, the Nuer and the Dinka, led to political instability and renewed violence. On December 15, 2013, Christina was awoken by a deafening noise. It was very early in the morning, like around 3, 4 a.m. We heard gunshots, okay? I thought they were like, um, you know, thunder. I thought like, you know, it was going to rain. But one glance at her parents' frightened faces made it clear that this was no regular storm. Meanwhile, the blasts just grew louder and louder. It felt really close. It felt as if, like, it was just, you know, inside our house. And my mom, she was so terrified. I saw it in her eyes, but she didn't say nothing. My dad then left the house. He went to, he went to the market to see what was actually happening, to hear some news. And then he came back home. And he said that a war started. I felt so terrified when he said war because I just, at that, at that point, I imagined myself dead. The family barricaded themselves inside. We were inside the room. And whenever we heard the gunshots so close to us, we, we hid under the bed. A few days later, armed men started going from house to house. And then uh, they ask you, where are you from? Like, which tribe are you from? And uh, if you're like an enemy, then they kill you. What Christina is describing here are documented incidents of ethnic cleansing in and around Juba. My dad decided that it wasn't safe for us at home because if we would stay for any longer, then we would be like the next people to be killed, just like how they killed our neighbors. Along with friends and neighbors, the Bazias escaped to a nearby forest, but the chaos and violence followed them there too. These people, they did horrible things when they came there. They killed people. Many families got separated there. Christina witnessed things that nobody, especially not a 13-year-old girl, would ever want to see. My dad tried his best to cover our eyes and not see what's happening, but you just cannot, you cannot just ignore all that. Christina and her family were lucky. They made it out of the forest alive. They ultimately returned to their house, only to find it completely ransacked. And she could tell that that shock, that pain, was very familiar to her parents. At that point, I understood why they were actually just running from one country to another. And I understood the cause that forced them to leave Sudan. I just understood everything because it just looked like they were not... They're not strange to that feeling, and they're not strange to that situation. Christina was determined to live a different life, to write a different story, to have a different fate. I felt I was under so much pressure that if I don't do it now, then it's not going to happen anymore. A plan started to form in her head. She ran to the nearest open store she could find, plugged in her cell phone, and sent a Facebook message to Leo her former youth movement leader back in Israel. She asked me to call her, not just write her on the Facebook, so I understand something really wrong happened. Yet nothing in Leo's life had prepared her for what she was about to hear. I remember it was just a regular afternoon. I was in the kibbutz, uh, walking on the path. Uh, uh, I called her in this moment. She told me, you have to help me. You have to get me out of here. I didn't know from where she had the power and to say it uh, after all she'd been through and saw but it was like her survival uh, way of um, looking for every person who can help I was very shocked in the beginning and very frightened what can I do how can I help her she's depending on me she needs my help and she 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 turned to me as soon as they hung up Lior sprung into action she got in touch with Come True, an Israeli organization Christina had mentioned on the phone. Their mission was to take children from South Sudan to neighboring Uganda. Lior asked what needed to be done in order to bring Christina to safety. 
And the answer was surprisingly simple. All we needed was money because the way was, was open. Lior set up a crowdfunding campaign and asked her friends to donate. Within just a few days, she managed to raise $1,200, enough to pay not only for the transfer of both Christina and her sister Viola to Kampala, but also for school fees once they got there. I felt really good and happy that I was going out of South Sudan. But on the other hand, I felt horrible that I was leaving my parents behind and didn't know what was actually going to happen to them. In early February 2014, Philip escorted his two daughters to the central bus station in Juba. My dad was like, take care of yourself. Don't be um, a very stubborn kid. Listen to your sister and don't think about us. We're going to, whatever is going to happen, just, you know, just know that we love you. We're very proud of you. And, um, and yeah, that's, uh, that was uh, his last words before we left. Kampala was a 13-hour bus ride away. But for the Bazia sisters, it might as well have been a different universe. A safe one, yes, but also a foreign and lonely one. Uganda, it was like, you know, it was another different world. I was used to the fact that my parents directed me and told me what to do and did everything for me. And, you know, were there always for me. Um... And it's just, you know, it was hard. And I I became, I just, you know, I became an adult at a very young age. I became my own parent. The sisters were soon separated, each sent to a different school. Christina barely made any friends. I just, I didn't feel comfortable turning to anyone if I like I had problems so I felt bad till one day out of the blue a parcel addressed to Christina arrived at the school it was from Israel and had some pencils notebooks and sweets and there was also a letter signed by a woman called Shira okay my name is Shira Shira Ami married to Eli and I'm 68 Shira lives in Yehud she's petite and energetic and her friendly face has deep laughter lines. A few weeks earlier, she had come across a Facebook post by Come True, the organization that had brought Christina to Uganda, and had decided to become a sponsor, Christina's sponsor. And uh, since uh, I'm very talkative, verbal person, I asked Christina if she wants to correspond with me. And since Christina is a very talkative and verbal person, she said yes. They began exchanging messages. And she shared with me some of her experiences. And I reacted. And from time to time, I gave her an advice. It started being more and more personal. That's Eli, Shira's husband. Christina understood that this is an opportunity for her to ask for help, for advice. It became much more than just sending a check once a month and her thanking us. In ways Shira couldn't have imagined, she was exactly what Christina needed, someone to lean on. And even more so, she represented an unexpected link back to Christina's childhood home, Israel. They talk about Christina's experiences at school, about her parents back in South Sudan. Shira would send pictures of her daughter and two grandchildren. And um, one day she heard about this school called Givat Chaviva. Givat Chaviva is a boarding school, not far from Khadera, that accepts international students. And once she heard of it, Shira immediately thought, Hey, I want this for Christina as well. Then she told me about it and I'm like, of course. I was like, of course, I am in. I want I want to go there and I really want to study there. But first of all, I asked Ellie, Ellie, what do you think? Can we bring Kistina to Israel? We'll ask for a help of our family, of our friends. And he said, okay, 
That's a good idea. I learned one thing in life, and that is that following Shira and her crazy ideas is always interesting. So I follow her. Now, if you're like me, perhaps you're surprised by the apparent ease and lightheartedness with which Shira and Ellie made this move. I mean, after all, here they were, a retired couple in their late 60s, deciding to take in a Sudanese teenager who, text messages aside, was basically a complete stranger. I asked Shira about their motivation, and fittingly, she moved straight into Hebrew. As far as I'm concerned, this is Zionism. For me, this is acting as an Israeli, taking care of the society I live in. That's my motivation. That's the explanation for why I'm doing this. And yeah, some people will say, okay, fair enough. You want to help? Help the people who are already here in Israel. But why on earth would you bring back somebody who's already left Israel and lived somewhere else? I don't know. Maybe, maybe because I feel like I owe this person something? Because they were deported from here? Maybe because I feel like I still have a debt to pay? In any case, why does it matter? A human is a human is a human. And it was that unadorned belief that guided Shira and Ellie throughout the long and complicated bureaucratic process of getting Christina to Israel. As they filled out countless forms and applied for permits and visas, they maintained an unwavering conviction that they were simply doing the right thing. Finally, they got the green light. Christina could come to Israel. In just 17 years, Christina had been through more trauma than most people experience in a lifetime. She'd been smuggled and deported. She'd witnessed war and violence. And she'd been separated from her parents at the age of 13. But here she was, returning to the country that had once expelled her, a country that she nevertheless still viewed with rose-colored glasses. When she landed at Ben Gurion Airport in September 2018, Christina was elated. She was finally fulfilling the promise she had made to herself at the very same place six years earlier. She had returned to Israel. When I landed, I just, you know, I'm like, wow, I'm in Israel. And I said I was going to come back, but I didn't know how, but I'm in Israel. And I felt so excited. And then we came out and we saw like a bunch of people waiting for us, like, you know, many people waiting. Among them were Lior and other old friends from Arad. And I saw many people like, you know, just there to welcome us, to welcome me. And I felt so, so loved. Shira and Eli were there too. I went up to her. I hugged her and I told her, we'll be your family in Israel. And that was a promise, a promise from which we didn't shift even an inch. It was therefore a sweet homecoming, an optimistic one. But given all that had happened since she had last left the country, could Israel still be her home? Two and a half years later, that's a question Christina is still trying to answer. See, just as her story has several possible starting points, it could end in different places too. I could stop right here at Ben Gurion Airport with Christina triumphantly returning to her childhood home. Or else I could go on a bit farther and mention how last spring Christina got her high school diploma from Givat Chaviva. If we're really in the mood for a feel-good ending, I could say that earlier this year she began university and now lives in the dorms on campus. I tell you that she visits Shira and Ellie on weekends and that she has long phone calls with her parents and siblings. All those endings would, of course, be true. But they are not the ending I chose to tell you. I've spent a lot of time with Christina over the last few months. We've had long chats and without us even realizing it, 
almost all of them end up being about one question. Where is home? I've struggled to figure out where her story ends. And ultimately, I settled on an ending which isn't quite so neat or tidy. See, Christina's entire journey, the many places she's called home, have each left their mark on her. They've made her worldly, for sure, but they've also made her sober. In the years since her return to Israel, she's encountered incredible generosity and warmth. But she's also seen less rosy sides of the country. Racism, intolerance, xenophobia. And those experiences have complicated her fuzzy childhood memories of Arad. As much as I felt I was home, I was not actually at home because I was not like any other citizen in Israel. And that alone excludes me from the society. There's so many good people. There's so many nice people, but there are also some people who don't really understand what we as black people go through, what we have to experience each and every day. You know, people are forgetting that we are all humans. It's so complicated to think of home when all what I went through is just not the definition of home. But I think also home can be can be can be people. I feel home now because I'm with the people I love and who care for me and who showed me that they will be there for me no matter what. So when I define home, I can mention people's names instead of countries. Marie Rude. We live in a time in which many people around the world are still searching for a place to call home. And while we, perhaps, are listening to this episode from within the comfort of our own home, be it a permanent one or a temporary sukkah, I hope we can all keep those among us who are less rooted in our thoughts and prayers. Zev Levi scored and sound designed this episode with music from Blue Dot Sessions. As always, Sela Weissblum mixed it all up. Thanks to our wonderful dubbers David Satran and Karni Arkin, and to Lea Miller Forstadt, Douglas H. Johnson, Nan Galuak, Thomas Kuhn, and many other asylum seekers and former asylum seekers who shared their own experiences with us. Thanks also to Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fag, and Joy Levitt. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Lastly, if you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Skyler Inman, Nomi Schneider, Adina Karpuch, Ellie Blyer, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Sonia Applebaum, Laura Kapelyushnik, Tanya Huyard, and Matthew Littman are wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro and Jesse Adler from the Podglomerate are our marketing team. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, wishing you all a Chag Sameach and Moadim Lesimcha. Shalom Shalom and Yalla Bye. Sarah
Thank you. 